welcome to the Israel Daily News Podcast. I'm your host, Shanna Fold, and we are going to get you all the information that you have been wondering about recently. Today, we are going to have a very, very important guest with us, and his name is Ambassador Michael Oren. He was the former ambassador from Israel to the United States between 2009 and 2013, and today he is a best-selling author, and he is also running an organization. He is the president of the organization called Israel 2048, and the idea is to talk about the future of the state of Israel, get thinking about what our future looks like in this country, and make the place that we want to live now and for the future. So I'm very excited that we are going to have the former ambassador with us and he's really making a grand effort to shape the future of the country. Now what we are going to talk about today is Supreme Court reform. Now Supreme Court reform is something that everyone is talking about everywhere in the United States, in Israel, in Europe, and everyone seems to have an opinion about it, including the banks, economists, business owners here in Israel. And what we don't necessarily understand is what is the status quo? What does the Supreme Court look like today? And what do we want the Supreme Court to look like tomorrow? And are we really, truly losing our democracy? To discuss this is Ambassador Michael Oren. I am going to invite him to join us momentarily. Hello, Ambassador Oren. How are you? We're great as soon as we get the phone at the right height. <laughs> okay. <laughs> these, these are the great technical challenges of the 21st century. Absolutely, okay. they are. I think you got me. Hi. Hi, Shana. How are you? Hi, I'm right. great. You know, a lot of officials do Instagram Live with me, and I'm their first journalist to interview them on Instagram Live. So am I your first journalist? You are my very first we're trying to figure out how this works as a matter of fact okay if you got me it worked the important Terrific. thing, thank you. thing thank you. about the important thing that i like about instagram live is it's really accessible to people and it and it stays on the page so it's on my page it's on your page so people will be able to access this information in the future great excellent excellent Good to so be thank you so much for being with us today delightful supreme court go ahead fire First question, is democracy at risk? I think no. I think no. I think there are challenges. There's a big, there's a big difference between challenge and at risk. And, uh, and democracy is a very wide concept. And uh, one person's democracy may be another person's less than democratic. Uh, right now, Israel, I would say, is flagrantly democratic. Uh, and uh, I have what to compare it to, to other democracies in the world. Uh, and uh, Israel. Israel is one of the maybe five countries in the world that has never known a second of non-democratic governance. It's one of our great accomplishments, uh, especially given the fact that uh, Israel is the only country on that list that's never known a second of peace. And what usually destroys democracies uh, in the world is our conflicts and wars. And given the rather fractious nature of our society, the fact that we have maintained this democracy uh, uninterruptedly since 1948 is an extraordinary accomplishment. Absolutely. And a lot of people really like to discuss the shared values between the United States and Israel, a place that you know well, a place that I know well. And what is coming up all the time are our shared democratic values. And that's why we're such strong allies. Um, 
an, an issue that we have here when we're discussing democracy that has been coming up is the systems in place here in Israel cannot quite be compared to the United States. The United States has three branches of government. Here in Israel, we have two. For those who are watching that don't really understand what that means or what that looks like, can you describe the political scene? Well, America has three co-equal branches of government. It has the legislature, it has two houses of Congress, it has the, uh, the executive, the White House, the administration, and it has the judiciary, the Supreme Court, uh, and they have checks and balances between them. Uh, we, the Knesset and the government are inseparable because in theory, the power of the government derives from the Knesset. Uh, when the prime minister, Prime Minister Netanyahu appears in Knesset, he's referred to as Knesset member Netanyahu, not as prime minister Netanyahu. Um, and so we don't have that separation. The Knesset is not a co-equal branch of government. And as a member of Knesset for years, I was told walking into the Knesset every week exactly how I was going to vote. Uh, it was the way the government had determined I would vote in a coalition agreement. Uh, the only major check on government is, of course, the judiciary, uh, which is why I've always felt that there has to be judicial review. Um, and uh, in this project, the 2048 project, and this is a book that's coming out next month, um, called Israel 2048, The Rejuvenated State. Uh, in English, Arabic, and Hebrew, this book is coming out. There's a section on judicial review that I wrote two years ago while I was working on the subject in Knesset, uh, Shana. And my, uh, my starting out point was we have to preserve judicial review as one of the pillars of democracy. And yes, part of the foundations of our strategic alliance with the United States, the shared democratic values. But at the same time, we had to reform the Supreme Court, because the status quo was not tenable. The status quo was actually not maintaining a viable check on government, was actually leading to a showdown uh, between the judiciary and the Knesset. And in this book written two years ago, I predicted precisely what's happening right now. And how did you, well, I, the judicial Supreme, the issue here of the Supreme Court has been something that's been brewing since the Supreme Court in 96 took a uh, leap into the place that it is now and people were arguing and getting upset about it in 1996 about how could the Supreme Court have so much power and they were able to move ahead into the atmosphere that we have today and it became the status quo. Now we're trying to have a reform and maybe everyone is out in the street protesting but we're going to have a new status quo. So talk to us about what is the status quo right now? How do judges get appointed to the Supreme Court currently? And what is being proposed to be reformed? Well, let's go back three steps. Let's find out what that status quo was and why did it lay the groundwork for the confrontation uh, that I predicted. And it, it wasn't rocket science, Shana. It was two major issues. One was the scope of the Supreme Court. And that was articulated by uh, the then president of the Supreme Court, Aaron Barak, in the 1990s. And he said in Hebrew, Akol shafit, everything is adjudicable. That means the Supreme Court could pass uh, judgment on issues relating to the legality of any piece of legislation in the Knesset, but also on virtually everything. Uh, one of the big issues uh, after the, uh, the out outbreak of the Second Intifada in 2000, when Israel determined that it was going to build a separation barrier between us and Judea and Samaria to prevent the infiltration of terrorist bombers, a very effective strategy, by the way, Supreme Court kept on ruling on the placement of the fence. Um, Palestinians 
even Palestinians who live in Judea and Samaria have the access to the Supreme Court was saying, listen, this fence is going through my backyard. This fence is pre preventing my, my kids from going to school. Uh, and the Supreme Court would tell the army again and again they had to move the fence. Uh, you can't imagine uh, the Supreme Court of the United States moving the border between the United States and Canada and the United States and, Me and Mexico back and forth. So these were extraordinary, almost unlimited scope of the Supreme Court on that, what they call an activist Supreme Court. So that was one problem. The other problem, as you intimated earlier, is the way Supreme Court judges are, are chosen. Now, for our American listeners, you know that in the United States, you have not one, but two opportunities as a citizen uh, to impact the composition of the Supreme Court. You vote for president who nominates the Supreme Court judges and you vote for the Senate, uh, which affirms those Supreme Court judges. And so that, for that reason, the composition of the US Supreme Court is a major electoral issues in the United States. I know my family uh, votes for president on the basis of, of, of who, will, who will determine uh, the composition of the Supreme Court. It's a major issue. Is it ever an issue here? Have you lived through elections here? Has it ever been a big subject here? No, why? Because we actually don't have much say as citizens. Uh, the Supreme Court judges are chosen by a panel of nine on that nine are two uh, cabinet ministers, one is the justice minister, uh, two Knesset members, uh, two representatives of the Lawyers Guild, and three Supreme Court judges, including the president of the Supreme Court judges. That means that the majority decision uh, made, by the way, it the Supreme Court judges has to be chosen by seven of the nine. So if you have five jurists who agree on a candidate, that candidate's gonna be selected which wouldn't be problematic, but human beings naturally will select as their successors people who agree with them, not people who disagree with them. And so the outlook, the worldview of Supreme Court basically perpetuated itself um, year after year, decade after decade. So in terms of its judicial outlook, the Supreme Court remains somewhere in the mid nineties, but is really public opinion has moved and has moved uh, distinctly precipitously to the right, so much so much so, so that there's hardly any Israeli left left. And so there's a widening gap between the worldview of the Supreme Court and the worldview of the Knesset, which actually is elected by the populace. And so increasingly, uh, certainly in comparison to the first decades of Israel existence, the instances in which the Supreme Court has overridden uh, legislation by the, by the Knesset has multiplied. Uh, now to 21 times. So that was not a sustainable position. At some point, I realized years ago when I was serving in Knesset, that at some point the Knesset would say, wait a minute to the Supreme Court, we're elected, you're not elected. Who are you to tell the people of Israel that, that their decisions are not democratic, when in fact, those are actually the most democratically uh, arrived at decisions. So as you see, there's the, there's the groundwork for the confrontation we see. So now the big issue is how and to what extent do we limit the scope of the Supreme Court? And perhaps um, more controversially, how do we alter the way uh, Supreme Court judges are chosen in such a way that it gr more greatly reflects the attitudes and opinions and shifts in public opinion of the Israeli public? Um, now, in many, in many cases, such as the United States, but not only the United States, yes, politicians have a major shift in the way Supreme Court judges are, are chosen. In Europe in particular, most were chosen exclusively by Supreme Court judges. Um, in my book, The Rejuvenated State, 2048, eight should be chosen by the government, but seven should be chosen by a special committee. And that is in order to ensure that there would be an Arab uh, judge on the court, 
uh, and other minorities would be represented in the court, which was open to public opinion, exclusively public opinion, chances are the Israeli public wouldn't choose an Arab judge. Okay, so let's put a pause there because I think that we got a lot of information. Now, one thing that I want to discuss is this, of course, the idea of having elected representatives being the voice of the people, right? So the people elect the officials and then the officials have the opportunity to elect their judges. Now that seems very democratic. One thing that I think a lot of people are struggling with and it's, it's not really much of a legislation issue at this point um, is that the Knesset right now looks very right wing and the Supreme Court right now looks very left wing. And so it feels like there's going to be a, an off balance of the, the checks because we have sort of conflicting sentiments in each of these bodies. Now, that's not to say that in the next Knesset, it's not going to be left and, and vice versa. How do we manage? Um, and I think one of your ideas about having half of the, uh, of the judges elected by parliament and half elected um, by the, the being appointed by people that are already in those places is a good idea. But can you explain to people um, how we have these two different bodies and currently it's right and left, but what is the future for that? Can we, can we lean on the idea that the court is always going to be left? Can we lean on the idea that the Knesset is always going to be right? And how can we safeguard it so that we do have the two sort of sectors of Israeli society that want to be represented so much. The right wing feels that they need control over the Knesset because there's no voice for them. The left wing, for example, the gay community, they feel that without a left court or a progressive court, there will be no place for them. How do we manage that? Well, let's, let's change the lexicon. Let's not think in terms of left and right. Okay. Let's think about the twin identities of this country. We are Jewish and democratic. And the claim uh, of the people who have uh, criticized the Supreme Court is that the court has given uh, undue um, emphasis to the democratic nature of the Jewish state uh, over and above uh, Israel's identity as the Jewish state. Um, there was a law uh, railroaded through Knesset by a left-wing government uh, back in the 90s about human dignity and freedom, which basically established the democratic nature of the Jewish state. And much later, during my term in Knesset several years ago, we passed the Jewish state law, the nation state law, uh, which is very controversial here and abroad. But for me, it was a very important corrective to that human dignity uh, 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 piece of legislation, a basic law, uh, which offset the, 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 the human dignity. Now, Israel, these two notions are often in conflict. What can we do? To being a Jewish state and a democratic thing, sometimes it works together, sometimes it doesn't. And the great way to arbitrate between the two is if we had a constitution, but we don't. So the Supreme Court makes its decisions uh, based on a, a different formula, much of it according to a principle of reasonableness. What is reasonable? Uh, and that's what's reasonable to the Supreme Court judges may not be reasonable to the people in my neighborhood in South Tel Aviv. Can you uh, pause there and explain to people about the reasonableness clause? Because a lot of people don't know what that is and they don't understand that. So can you just give a quick... It's a difficult clause. It, it exists in other legal systems, including the United States, um, but it's free floating. In other words, that you can't, when the Supreme Court of the United States makes a judgment, it can judge a law constitutional or unconstitutional. Here, the, ju the, the judges can only say whether it's reasonable or unreasonable. And you could, you know, you could take issue with that. One person's reason may be the other person's, you know, complete illogic. 
So it, that, that, therein lies the difficulty. And when you're dealing with this great split between Israel, the Jewish state, and Israel, the democratic state, and you have a Supreme Court that, that people will claim will give greater weight to the democratic, then that reasonableness seems very unreasonable. And, uh, and you throw in all sorts of other mixes like um, ethical, ethical uh, elements. Um, for example, when the Supreme Court found that the appointment of, uh, of Derry as the, uh, the finance minister was not just unreasonable, but unreasonable in the extreme by a vote of 10 to 11, uh, many people in the Mizrahi, the Eastern community, came out and said this is an example of, uh, of racial prejudice, of racism, especially since none of the Supreme Court judges voting, uh, finding Jerry's appointment is unreasonable, uh, were Mizrahi, were Eastern. Uh, so you, you, it has to do with legitimacy of the court. It's very, very crucial. Um, so that's why I thought that they also that uh, seven of the eight judges should be appointed by a committee to ensure diversity. Uh, because we need diversity in our Supreme Court. It's extremely important. Otherwise, people say, well, this is just a, an Ashkenazi elite that has, uh, that has very parochial interests and is pursuing those interests. Uh, one of the great claims of the people who are opposing the demonstrators against the government are saying, uh, these are all the embittered Ashkenazi elites who will never, have never reconciled themselves to the victory of Benjamin Netanyahu and the right. And, uh, and the, the uniformity uh, of both camps tends to reinforce uh, the need for diversity within the Supreme Court. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but it, it, it's certainly the absence of a constitution. And by the way, having a constitution is also very problematic in this country. I have been actually an anti-constitutionalist. I'm in favor of judicial reform and in favor of maintaining judicial review, but I'm against the constitution. I think it's a different discussion and why, and I have been for many, many years. But um, but having said that, the absence of a, of a constitution does complicate the question of judicial reform. Thank you for explaining that. So just to go through a couple of the bullets, and this is what I've been sharing on my podcast. If there's anything here that you want to get in on a little bit more or clarify a little bit more, I, in my podcast, I'm always giving the briefest version. In the Supreme Court reforms that are being proposed by the Justice Ministry, they want to, one, create a legislation in order that the Knesset can override a Supreme Court ruling after the Supreme Court has already come to their decision and made the ruling. Is that correct? That's correct. There are two major objections to the proposals by the government for reform. One is that they go entirely too far. Yes, 61, a simple majority can override a decision by the, by the Supreme Court which means the Knesset, in theory, could adopt very radical legislation, um, which could be perceived uh, abroad as unacceptable legislation. The Supreme Court would try to override it, and then the Knesset would override the Supreme Court uh, and impose it. So it's not, a, it's not an effective check. A majority of one, I don't think, uh, is an effective check. Um, doesn't leave the, the Supreme Court with an effective check. The second issue is, has to do, it's very political. Who is advancing uh, the legislation? And uh, whether it's Netanyahu himself, who is facing, you know, charges, has been indicted on charges of facing, char is facing uh, um, uh, court time, is actually appearing in court as a defendant, or other members of the government like Derry, who have been actually served prison time and then found again uh, guilty of tax evasion, uh, to people such as uh, Benvir in charge of the police, who also himself has a police record. You know, it, it, people are saying, okay, who are these people to advance reform? And are, are these reforms self-serving? Um, what the opposition doesn't say 
and this is, uh, and I'm going to sound a bit political here, is they haven't, they haven't proposed an alternative. Um, I know what they don't want. I don't, you know, I, I'd like to see what they do want. Um, and, uh, you know, the previous government uh, under Naftali Bennett, people forget that Naftali Bennett in 2019 ran for the Knesset on a platform that said he would take care of Hamas and Ayala Chiquette would take care of the Supreme Court. They equated Hamas with the Supreme Court as an enemy that they were going to deal with. Uh, but once he got into office, Naftali Bennett did nothing. Now, this situation is not sustainable. And are, should we ask ourselves as a society, are we willing to wait around until such a time as we have a government, which is to everyone's liking, which as you know, ain't gonna happen, um, uh, in order to advance these reforms? Or are we gonna create a situation where these, this system of checks and balances breaks down? And that's my, my true fear about the breakdown system of, 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 of checks and balances, which I predicted again a couple of years ago, because I saw it coming. I saw the gap in worldview between the Supreme Court on one hand and the Knesset on the other was getting so wide that, that the rope was gonna snap. I don't wanna mix my metaphors, but it was, gonna, it was gonna snap. And this is what's happening, it's snapping. And then how do we get it back? And the way to get it back is through limiting the scope of the Supreme Court and altering, altering the way Supreme Court judges are, are chosen. Okay, so another interesting and important, there are so many, you know, as we go through this interview, there are so many legs to this issue here that we can dive into. And I've been trying to simplify it. One of the big issues that people are putting forward is that in this proposed legislation of having a majority of 61 out of 120, you don't have to be a mathematician to figure it out, a 61 seat majority in order to have the ability to veto a Supreme Court decision is very slim. It's just more, it's just, just one more than half. A lot of people take issue with that. What's your response to that? My response I just said, I take issue with it too. It's too slim. Not just that, I, having been in government, it helps having been in government. You know how Knesset majorities are formed. Okay. I mentioned earlier that we're, the Knesset is not a co-equal branch of government, that in entering the Knesset on a Monday or a Sunday, you're told exactly what you're going to vote for. And basically every Knesset member becomes a finger. You, you point for yes or no, <laughs> you know, in, in favor of legislation or above, bad, naked. And, uh, and if you vote against your government, and I've done it before, you pay a very high price. You're suspended from committees. You can be suspended from all sorts of things. And so you have two layers of discipline. It's coalition discipline and party discipline, which you have to then defy in order to vote against your government. So the 60, well, the point being is that the 61 majority is guaranteed pretty much. It almost never happens that it's broken. And uh, especially on, on issues of principle. So uh, it's, you say, well, hey, maybe the Knesset will never get to 61. And I'll say, no, Smith will almost always get to 61 because of the layers of discipline. So you've got to build in a bigger majority, I feel, whether it's a two thirds majority or other formulas, it's got to be, it's got to be different. Um, and I think that would allay some of the major concerns being, uh, being raised by, by the opponents. Uh, some of the opponents just don't like this government. There were, people forget that there were massive demonstrations against Netanyahu in the years before the elections. And some of the same people are, are protesting still. I think it's important that they do demonstrate. Don't get me wrong. I think that that voice is important, that people are concerned. It says a lot about this country, the nature of our democracy, that people care passionately about it. Um, and it, 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 it forms an important corrective. At the end of the day, I hope, and at a certain level, I also believe that there is a, there's a compromise out there. 
and I will certainly uh, praise our president, uh, Isaac Buzi Herzog, for his efforts, and I hope they succeed. I was disappointed by the remarks by the president of the Supreme Court, Esther Chayut, for whom I have the highest regard, but she came out and gave a very fiery contrary speech, which did not allow at the time for any possibility of compromise. Didn't acknowledge that there actually was a problem. That, that, didn't, that didn't bode well. Um, so I think that both the, the government and the Supreme Court have to sit down at some point and try to, or, try to ironite uh, a decision, especially since this government, though it does have a solid majority of 64, that four seat majority is based on about 30,000 votes. And uh, if you're gonna be addressing issues that are gonna profoundly impact the character of this state, I think you need a, a broader consensus. Okay, thank you for sharing that. And um, I wanna move into the players that are a part of each of these governmental systems. I wanna bring up a news item that deeply disturbed me. Um, Israel Bar Chief Avi Himi, uh, as well as his former, um, okay. Effie, Effie Nave, right. as we spoke about earlier. These are two men in power positions um, who have a lot of authority in bringing people into the court system. And I think, and, and um, you know, Chief Kimi, who resigned after sexual allegations came out against him just yesterday and within the last few days, he resigned. But he also said something that was interesting to me, which was the timing of these allegations were intentional. And what he was trying to say is that people were using this, they were saving it and holding his sexual allegation against him right now because we're going through this Supreme Court reform and that the right wing is trying to make a display that we need to be more responsible about who is in charge of bringing in members to the court system. Can you go over with me, how can we prevent behaviors of having people in power positions abusing their power? I know you said it's not really 100% about that when, when we did our pre-interview, but I want you to talk about um, the different players and also us having multiple people in the court system and, and the environment around the court in the government and the environment around the court who have criminal records. How, how can we manage with this? Well, <laughs> we are all human beings and you know, we are, are flawed and, and fallible uh, and people will uh, transgress the law and some of them will get caught and some of them will have to pay the price for it. Uh, and I don't wanna pass judgment on Mr. Hilmi because he's, he hasn't had his day in court. We don't wanna pass judgment on the prime minister either who's having his day in court and he's, he's innocent until proven guilty. And that's in contradistinction to Mr. Derry who was actually in court and proven guilty and serve kind. So there's a distinction there. Point being though, I think, uh, Shana, is that the claim that, that, this, that the reforms are being advanced by people who are, have been charged with criminality or been found guilty of criminality, that, that argument is weakened by the fact that some other people on the other side of the equation, the legal system, are also <laughs> have been found guilty or accused uh, of illegal behavior. And it calls into question whether you know, whether the, the majority opinion on that committee of nine should be jurists uh, themselves, including sitting Supreme Court judges who quite naturally will want to perpetuate their worldview uh, with their successors. And uh, why, 
who has determined that the committee should be representatives of the Lawyers Guild? Um, I, I don't think that should be a given by any Can you and explain that to our listeners about how that works? Well, like, Committee of nine, on the nine, two ministers, one who is the justice minister, two members of Knesset, um, three sitting judges, one of whom is the president of the Supreme Court, uh, and two members of the lawyer, representative of the Lawyers Guild, presumably the head of the Lawyers Guild, plus another uh, senior official in that body. Uh, which means that if you need seven out of nine to appoint a judge, and five of the members of the committee are jurists, then the jurists are going to have a preponderance of view. Now, in in practice, there's usually a consensus about the appointments of judges in recent years, in recent years. Uh, but still, the majority of people are, 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 being, are being appointed by judges or jurists who are not elected. This is, this is a big issue. So I would propose certainly increasing the number of elected officials on that body, but also uh, ensuring that the other members of the appointments committee are people who have been uh, thoroughly vetted. The way I was vetted to be ambassador in Washington, believe me, I was vetted. See this gray hair? That comes from the vetting. Um, and because you're representing the, the soul of this country, you should be above any suspicion. It's, it's, it's unpleasant to be vetted. You go through it. Right? And, but, uh, and that's extremely important. We have state commissioners precisely for that reason. And um, they should be above all suspicion. And, you know, what, whether you know, Mr. Hilney is guilty or not, um, and I'll quote President Kennedy on this, and it's a strange quote from President Kennedy, but was that uh, a woman should not only be virtuous, she should also appear to be virtuous. And the, the, appear, the appearance of, of virtue of the Supreme Court is also important in maintaining its authority and respect throughout its religious society. Absolutely. I want to take this moment to let everyone know who's watching us that you can ask a question. There is a little question bubble in the bottom right of your screen. If you would like to ask a question, go ahead and put it in the box. I'll be able to bring it up onto the screen. I know a couple of people put some questions in the comment section already. Um, so you can think about what questions that you have for um, Ambassador, Deputy Prime Minister Office, uh, Michael Oren. You've had so many titles. Um, and in the meantime, I am going to ask you one question and then I'm going to let you finish off with your vision um, because I really feel that it's important that we as a society recognize that our vision matters. And like you said, um, so many people are out in the streets, 100,000 people are out in the streets protesting Saturday night after Saturday night after Saturday night. But what about the solutions? So I'd like to hear you just do a, a quick wrap of those. Before we get to that, I wanted to hit on the international response to the Supreme Court reforms that are being proposed. HSBC, the fourth biggest bank in the world, came out with a report that they wrote. It actually wasn't such a tough report if you really get into it and you read it. But the headline for Haaretz today was that judicial reform is going to reduce investment into Israel. Then when you read it, it talks about how the true indicators of investments are um, actually more economic and about exposure that Israeli entrepreneurs get in the world stage versus um, you know, what's going on with the legal systems. But I've also written two reports 
talking to risk managers who, who work with Israeli clients. Um, I interviewed former member of Knesset Alex Kushner, who was on the finance committee in the previous government and was a business consultant his whole life. And he says that when he actually represents Israelis abroad, Israelis with a lot of money who are looking where to put their money, that the first thing he does is check to see the strength of that Supreme Court and see that the court is independent because should his client, and he's giving his clients a suggestion of where to put his funds, should the client have an issue with his business, he wants to make sure that the government or you know government leaders won't be able to impact that. So there are real concerns from business owners who, like you said, it might not be about the virtue of the woman, but the appearance of the virtue of the woman. So can you talk to us about how we can weather the international response to this? And uh, is, it, is it legitimate? Well, I certainly have a high respect for Alex Kirshner, but I, I'd like him to point to a, a single case in the past where the Supreme Court uh, overrode a decision of Knesset that impacted the business community. Uh, I can't. Uh, maybe there are, but off the top of my head, I certainly can't. And I'm actually a consultant for high tech in this country. And I, I'm talking to investors all the time and customers all the time. Um, nobody has raised a concern with me so far. And uh, what they care about is whether the business is going to make money or not, and uh, whether it's a great technology or not. And I have meetings today right after this that's going to deal with, with various technologies that I represent. Um, there is a general situation of a, of a world that's on the verge of a, of a, 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 a pastoral recession or even worse. And investments generally are down in Israel this year and down significantly it has nothing to do with the reforms or, or the opposition to the reforms. And we have to resist the, the opportunity, the, the tendency to ascribe to the political situation uh, a downturn in investments, which has nothing to do with the political situation, it has to do with the world economy. Uh, we have to be very careful. Now, having said that, yes, there's an image issue. And we're always facing an Israeli image issue. It has as much to do with the Supreme Court as it has to do with other elements in this government, which frankly, as a person who defends Israel internationally, some, some people in this government are not defensible, uh, certainly not before an American audience, and uh, especially those who ascribe to you know, racist uh, positions. You just can't do that. And that has an impact, I think, more than the prescription. I think I just come back from the United States yesterday. I come back from meetings with some of the largest Jewish donors in the United States. Nobody understands this issue, Shana. Nobody understands it. And they're reading columns like Tom Friedman's, which last week, believe it or not, assailed uh, the government for, for proposing that Supreme Court judges be nominated and approved by politicians. Oh, my God. Where does that happen in the world? In the United States of America. Okay, <laughs> That's how insane this kind of conversation has gone completely divorced from reality. That doesn't mean there's not reason for serious concern like that override. I told you that override is, is, uh, is too narrow. And some of the people advancing this legislation uh, could have cleaner hands, like Mr. Derry. Um, they could. Uh, but to, to assail Israel for trying to make its system um, more closely resemble the American system is, is just simply not fair and, and inaccurate. So we don't know. My gut feeling as someone who has one world, one foot in this world, which is the world of politics, public diplomacy, and the other foot in high-click business, is that at the end of the day, what determines Israel's economy is the quality of its technology and its ability to do business. I, I, don't, I don't see, with all due respect, Mr. Kirshner, I don't see where the Supreme Court plays a huge role. Keep in mind, and I don't want to compare us to any other country in the world, don't take me out of context. People have no trouble doing business with China. 
do they now? And I don't think there's actually strong judicial review there. Okay. Um, that, is a, that is a really interesting point about China. Um, and, and it is true. People buy and buy and buy. And, and I'm, I'm likely sitting on a chair from China right now. Singapore. I would, I Singapore does not have judicial review, <laughs> as far as I know. Okay, so, you know, the business world is, about, is, is first and foremost about business. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, thank you for that. Now, I'm going to take some questions because I want the last thing that you talk about to be the vision because I think it's the most important part. So I'm just gonna ask you a couple questions from people. Um, we have a question which I have wondered myself as an American Israeli, do you regret renouncing your American citizenship in order that you could be the, for, the, be the ambassador to the United States from Absolutely Israel? not, absolutely not, never, never, never. Did I, in, did I enjoy giving up my American citizenship? I did not, I cried. Uh, unabashedly, I cried. I'm a proud American. My American values and the values I received growing up in the United States, my education in the United States, all contributed to my decision to make Aliyah, to serve as ambassador, my sense of service to this country, all come from an, a deep American uh, background uh, and education. Um, and I saw it in, in many ways becoming ambassador, becoming Israeli and becoming ambassador, kind of the fulfillment of my sort of identity, my dual identity. Um, I wish it weren't the case that I had to give up my, my, my citizenship, but if that was the price, I was fully willing to do it. Spoken, very true. Right. Um, I have a question here. How do you balance maintaining a Jewish population majority in the long term in Israel with giving representation to Arabs in government? Are we trying to be inclusive at the cost of losing our state? Ah. So this is a, an issue I deal with at length. It's not one, it's several issues. Uh, that I deal with it extensively in the, in the book 2048, um, both our relationship with the, with the Arab minority, um, our character as a Jewish state, which has a large non-Jewish minority, it's not just Arabs, uh, and how do we look forward to a second century starting in 2048 that will be as successful as our first century that started in 1948. Um, and I make several proposals. One is that we can't ignore the fact that 21% of the population is Arab uh, and that other segments here are not Jewish. Uh, and that on a very sort of cultural level, we have to make room for them in our story. Now the Israeli story uh, has proven to be very, very flexible. We've made room in that story for the Druze. We've made room in that story for the Circassians, uh, from immigrants from this former Soviet Union, from Ethiopia, we've expanded it. And there's room in this story for Arabs as well. Um, and uh, it's it, not without its controversies, but it can be done. I talk, I have a whole chapter called uh, The New Deal, which American readers will recognize, you know, with its Rooseveltian resonances. Uh, but the New Deal is this, that Israel truly declares war against discrimination. Now we say, you know, we, we're all in favor of equal rights here, but how much do we actually fight for equal rights in the, in the workplace, in education? Uh, in the courtrooms and society in general. Um, I lived in a mixed neighborhood, so I'm very sensitive to that here in Jaffa. Um, really declare war uh, against discrimination. That's one part of the New Deal. But the other part of the New Deal is that our Arab citizens uh, recognize that they are a minority in a nation state, a Jewish nation state. Um, the example I give are Anglo Jews, those of you who are from Great Britain uh, in the background who are listening to us, you, know, you will salute serve and even sometimes die for a, uh, for a flag that has not one cross on it, but has three crosses on it. 
and sing God Save the Queen to the head of the Church of England and have no problem with that. So you know there is to be a minority in a non-Jewish nation state. And there's no reason why an Israeli Arab cannot salute our flag and sing Hatifa uh, and serve our flag. So that's the New Deal. It has two sides. Um, now, having said that, I think that they, we should draw much clearer lines about what is permissible and what isn't. An Arab member of Knesset who supports terror should not be in Knesset. As far as I'm concerned, they should be in jail. Uh, when uh, terrorists are released from prison for having, after serving 40 years, after killing an Israeli, and are greeted as heroes in their village, to my mind, that's, that's, that's the support for incitement to terror. And those people should be arrested. We shouldn't be putting up with this. Um, I must say that the core problem I'm, I wrestle with in this book is the lack of understanding in this country of sovereignty and what sovereignty really means. Uh, we Jewish people were not sovereign for 2000 years. And we now are the proud owners of a sovereign state, but we quite don't understand what sovereignty is. And so there is no effective Israeli society over 62% of this country, which is south of the Negev. No effective security. There are 400,000 illegal Bedouin structures there that nobody will take down. Uh, there's no effective uh, sovereignty in parts of Jerusalem and parts of the Galilee. We don't understand it. And much of this debate about Supreme Court and the Knesset about who is sovereign, uh, I would like to see that debate uh, applied to areas which in, in any ways, in many ways are as acute, if not even more challenging uh, than the relationship between government and the Supreme Court. Um, do we have effective sovereignty over our territory? And, uh, and the answer right now is unequivocally no. And that's a huge challenge to our state. Uh, am I getting off principle here? I can't even remember what the question was, Sana. But, <laughs> but this is, these, are, these, are, these are issues I care uh, passionately about. And these are the issues that will determine, truly determine, whether we'll have a second successful century. A second successful what? Century. Entry. Meaning entry, as- Starting uh, in 2048. Okay. Uh, and our, oh, century. Okay, okay, I understand, thank you. Um, the question was, how can, we, how can we manage the Arab population and still maintain our identity as a, a Jewish state? And I do think that you answered it. And um, luckily for us, the last question, oh, it looks like one more person. Okay. It looks like a few more people put in a couple of questions mm -hmm. here. Um, well, we, we discussed, I see a question from David asking about Esther Hyatt's speech and the comments. We did discuss that. Did. Um, and so I'm going to just, well, one of the questions. I see, one, David, I see one question come up on my screen. It says we need stricter laws. Okay, and I would say, no, we that. don't need stricter laws. We need, we need enforcement. So uh, Israel, you should know, uh, we, 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 we very proudly, uh, the Knesset passes more laws than almost any other parliament on the planet. We, we can pass up to 4,000 laws a year. I know many nights passing hundreds of laws, um, but we have one of the lowest levels of enforcement of our laws of any, any uh, modernized country in the world. About 35% of our laws only, a mere 35% are enforced. So I just gave you the example of 400,000 Bedouin structures that are built illegally in the Negev and our laws are not enforced. Uh, upwards of 30% of Bedouin men uh, have more than one wife, which is also illegal in the state of Israel, and that's not enforced. Uh, and that's basically chattel slavery, as women are purchased. So uh, that is our major problem, is not passing laws, it's enforcing them. Okay. So one of the questions that we have, and I'm going to let that take us away um and of course i'm going to you know talk a little bit about let give you some space for your book as well 
which revisions in the Supreme Court would you recommend? And you sprinkled Tandem. some of them in throughout the interview, but if you could just tuck, 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 give us the list. How do you see us getting out of this reform issue? Well, I, I made that proposal of the 15 judges. Um, uh, eight would be appointed by, by the government, by Knesset, um, as they come up. We, our, we don't, we, we don't, our appointments are not from life. Uh, Supreme Court judges are supposed to retire by age 70. Uh, and so there's a, there's a higher turner, a turnover rate than you'd have in the United States. Uh, and we also have a higher turnover rate of governments, as you may have noticed. Uh, so uh, about eight would be appointed by the reigning government uh, and seven by a special committee whose, uh, whose members would be very strictly uh, vetted. And they wouldn't be according to whether the Supreme Court judges or members of the judiciary, any judiciary, you know, members of the Lawyers Guild. Um, they could be public intellectuals. Uh, they could be professors, um, be a very different group of people. They could be religious leaders. They could be representatives of minorities on that. It'd be very important. You get diversity in that committee would be extremely important. How much diversity do you have in that in the nine today? Uh, next to none. Next to none. And so we, there's a definite reform that can be done there. And then the hard job of, is restricting the, the scope of the Supreme Court. And we have a Supreme Court which actually wears two hats. It's the Supreme Court, which judges on, which sits and presides over issues of principle, basic laws. But it's also the, um, it's also the, the court of last appeals. Uh, so you can be begin a court case in a lower court, go through magistrate courts, local courts, municipal courts, and find yourself in front of the Supreme Court. Maybe we need to divide the two hats um, and only have the Supreme Court dealing with uh, issues of, of principle as you have uh, in the United States. And it would greatly, greatly reduce the weight on the Supreme Court, which is massive. We have a question here. Who would appoint that committee of 15? Well, we have a state commission on appointments um, and that state commission also could be important in charge of, the, the, of appointing that committee. Um, I've had to appear before that commission several times as a public official, and I can attest to the integrity and the efficiency of that committee. I'm very, always impressed by them. Thank you so much. Um, Ambassador Oren, you ha wear so many hats. You're involved in so many issues here in Israel. And um, one of the things that was very inspiring to me was that we actually got to know each other through the Sunset Series which is an event that I host for internationals and immigrants here in Tel Aviv who are in their 20s and 30s. And um, Ambassador Oren shared with us last week that you added in two more chapters to your book after getting some feedback from our community last year. And so I think that you are a great example of how important it is to think and think out loud and share your ideas and push for the future of this state because this state was built on the backs of immigrants and and immigrants should continue to raise their voices and um and i think that this discussion i hope that everybody who's joined us today to listen to the live will be invigorated to fight for this country and make it more democratic and make it even more sovereign and uh and for everyone to really lean into what we've created here in israel and um Ambassador Oren, if you'd like to give us a few words about your book, I'd be happy for you to. I'd love to talk about the book. The book's coming out in, in the beginning of March. It's coming out in Hebrew, Arabic, and English. 
it, it, it's really a manifesto. It's short. It's got 21 uh, chapters. Two were added, yes, as a result of my conversation with young people in Tel Aviv, one on, on gender issues and the other on the environment, uh, which I've learned a lot in, in actually in writing these. It's a process of learning. But the purpose of the book is not to convince you of my position. My purpose of the book is to get you uh, engaged, stimulated, angry, uh, throw the book against the wall, uh, but get involved in, in, in formulating the future for this country. This country, you know, we had 60 years to make this country, Shannon, between the 1860s and the 1940s. And we used that time to debate among ourselves what kind of state we wanted. Was it going to be a capitalist state, a socialist state, a religious state, a secular state, a pro-Western state, a pro-Soviet state? It was going to be... It, 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 so more than the, the, the force of arms, this country was created by the power of words. And uh, what I've seen is what we've lost is the ability to really talk to one another. And uh, as immigrants and the immigrants who immigrants made this country, this is your turn. Um, I always define Zionism as one word. It, it's responsibility. We take responsibility for ourselves as Jews in this country, for everything, for our, our lights and our sewers and our defense, everything. By making Aliyah, by coming here, you have assumed responsibility. Now go out and fulfill it. This future belongs to you, your children, your grandchildren. All of that destiny is in your hands. Accept it. Right. Very inspiring. Thank you so much. What an honor to have you on the show. I'm Shanna Fold of the Israel Daily News Podcast. I do this Monday through Thursday, and a newsletter comes out on Sunday. I'm always giving the roundup of what's happening in the news in Israel. And sometimes we do a deep dive with special guests like Ambassador Michael Oren. Thank you so much. Thanks, Shanna. Kol Tov. Be well, everybody. Good week. Bye-bye. All right, everyone, thank you so much for being with us. I recommend that you follow us here on Instagram at israeldaily.news. We are on Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you might hear a podcast, you can find us. We're doing a 10 to 15 minute roundup of what's happening in the news Monday through Thursday. And sometimes we do a deep dive like today. Thank you, everyone, for being with us to talk about Supreme Court reform. We tried to really pack it all in. Again, follow me. I'm Shanna Fold. My name has two N's in it, and I'm very sensitive about that. You can follow me on Instagram, and you can follow us at israeldaily.news, our professional news page where we're updating news about Israel. And please join us again. We're going to be back here on Instagram, same time, same place, on Thursday with activist Hen Mazig, who is very famous around the world. And we're going to be talking about the Supreme Court as well, but we're also going to be talking about him being Mizrahi and Eastern and what it means to him. He's gay, he's a gay activist, and he's also has some conservative ideas. So he's a very interesting person. We're going to be hearing from him on Thursday. Join us again.